Greetings and welcome to Warlord Games' official podcast. My name is Brad, and you might know this voice from other podcasts about bolt action and other game systems. Now, I have been brought in uh, by Warlord Games to help them set up their very own podcast. Now, Warlord Games has a fantastic selection of games that cover a wide variety of historical time periods and science fiction and a whole lot of other universes as well. Now, to help me introduce this incredible new podcast for your listening enjoyment, I have the one, the only, Paul Sawyer. Welcome, Paul, to your own podcast. Well, thanks, Brad. It's uh, an exciting venture. Uh, I understand this is what the young kids do these days, so looking forward to pressing on and uh, many more to come. Now, that's hilarious given that my my podcast my podcast moniker is old man morin but yes um i suppose <laughs> given that warlord is a british company and proudly so with every good reason why um it it should be uh we should have a british voice on at least to start given uh that i am an american expat living in australia that doesn't always <clears throat> scream british to everyone but hey it'll work in this particular case uh now Paul, can you tell us exactly who you are? Because I know a lot of people are familiar with some of the big faces um, that maybe go to conventions um, in the U.S. or represent Warlord Games in other countries. Um, for those of us who aren't in the British Isles, can you tell us who you are and uh, what you do at Warlord? Well, firstly, I do have a big face. Um, you, my, my time at Warlord um, was when myself and um, John Stallard uh, left Games Workshop. Uh, we've both been there for many years. Mm -hmm. uh, John on the sales side of things, uh, myself pr pr primarily as the editor of White Dwarf. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a scary thing to suddenly be in the big wide world, wondering what we were going to do. And uh, we met up, had a chat, and decided we wanted to start our own War Games company. Um, uh, it's one of those things that uh, where the stars aligned, both myself and John are very, very keen on uh, military history. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's where it started with uh, the will to make some plastic Romans in 28 mil. Uh, and from there, obviously, we now, as you mentioned, cover many historical periods from you know, the start of time with biblicals right the way through to um, World War II uh, and you know, many other universes, as you mentioned, quite rightly mentioned. That's right. Now, so uh, just to tease back a little bit to Warlord, it's, it's history. Um, you guys are based in Nottingham because that's where um, you worked when you worked for Workshop. So when you guys set up, and you first set out, and you did say you started with Plastic Romans. What was your first game system? Because I know that Bolt Action has been hugely popular for you, but I know for a fact it was by no means your first. Yeah, we we, um, we didn't really have, have um, a great plan to to do lots of rule systems we were primarily looking to start out with um, with plastic romans see how that went um imperial romans are the uh, the atypical uh, the classic look with the segmented armor mm -hmm. uh, anybody if you speak to anybody about a roman that'll be the first thing that comes to to mind so that's where we started with um uh, and the plan was from there on to obviously give them something to fight and uh, do the Celts. So we started in uh, the ancients period. Um, 
And so when it came to doing rules, um, bizarrely, our first rule set was for a completely different period, uh, which is our Black Powder rules written by Rick Priestley. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're a set that um, Rick had been uh, developing with friends uh, for, for personal battles, uh, you know, with John, the Perry Twins, Jervis Johnson, etc. Uh, just a um, few just a few people to name a few. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just one or two names dropped there. Exactly. Uh, um, from there, it was uh, just an opportunity to to, to publish these rules. Uh, it had no tie-in whatsoever with uh, our ancients miniatures, um, so it, it was uh, very very opportunistic. Uh, and then from there, um, talking to Rick, um, he was keen to do um, a version that covered ancients, and obviously that had a, a better tie-in with us for um, for our Romans uh, and our growing ancients range. So yeah, the first the first uh, the first sets were really mass battles um, played in a gentlemanly manner rather than uh, tournament centric, mm-hmm. um, which is something that yeah most of us here are um, in preference for with regards to play style. Yeah, you know, we do have people who like to do the, the, the tournament stuff, mm-hmm. um, but uh, predominantly um, the guys at Warlord are. Um, about en- enjoying the game, the majesty of it, the look, the the atmosphere in the background, um, um, and then from there, obviously, we've uh, managed to take on Bolt Action, which was a, a company that um, was run by a couple of guys. Uh, one of them, uh, sculptor Paul Hicks, who you probably heard of. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was doing sculpting for us with some of our Romans, uh, and unfortunately. Uh, their wives were saying, sorry, but our shed is now full of molds and models uh, and it's encroaching on the kitchen space <laughs> You've got to get rid. <clears throat> so they, they talked to us. Um, it was an obvious one for us because, yeah, it's World War Two. It's, it's certainly the period I'm uh, most fond of. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and it's obviously very, very popular. Um, so once we got the, the miniatures, it was uh, an obvious thing to do to... Um, try and get a rule set um, that fit with uh, what we considered to be a, a World War II game in God's scale, 28 mil. That's right. Uh, and, and we just had the opportunity to um, to work with our friends at Osprey. And it's been uh, a match made in heaven, as they say. That's right. Now, that you kind of beat me to my next question, which was, given the widespread and span of uh, Warlord's gaming systems, um, what, I guess, what period or what time sort of calls to you the most? Does it, is it World War II then? Uh, yeah, absolutely. If, if I had to put my, uh, my hat in the ring for one particular period, it would definitely be that. Uh, I'm also very fond of the uh, American War of Independence, mm-hmm. or rebellion, rebellion as we call it over here. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and um, I'm, I'm, you know, fond of the, the Crusades as well, medieval. But pre- predominantly, it's uh, World War Two. So that said, uh, if I'm not sure of your bolt action collection, um, are you a single army man or are you a I, I go where my fancy takes me and I may have a few armies? Do you have a particular love in bolt action? Yeah, uh, British powers without a shadow. Um, just the uh, the painting opportunities with the camo, the you know, obviously seen um, the uh, British too far and. Um, 
Those is the glory films over and over and over again. So um, it was an easy one to um, to pick up. Also very fond of the Germans, who isn't? Well, yeah, um, they're iconic. Everyone's. It's funny yeah. for every bolt action player I talk to. So many people go, "Oh yeah, I've got this army. I'm really passionate about this. I've got this, this. Oh, and I've got a German army." And it's just it's one of those things. They're sort of the villains um, or the iconic army that you end up having you end up getting anyway because if you have a love you have an army that you want to play um i know that when my friends and i got together we all picked an army and we all started and we all started small and got a plastic warlord kit of the plastic models then we got a couple of the resin tanks and we started adding to it and uh, everyone else had like i'm gonna do british i'm gonna do americans i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do that and i got to the end and it was like the only thing that i guess i'll play the germans um but then within short order everyone had a german army and I went, wait a minute, I was supposed to be the German player here. Um, but it's just, yeah, sorry. Um, so we later in this episode, we are going to be talking quite extensively about British paratroopers. Um, is there anything in particular, given your love of them, that you like about British paratroopers that calls to you um, historically or rules-wise that ties in? Um, I wouldn't say rules-wise particularly, Um it, I, I tend to approach the hobby much more from um, a looks perspective. Mm. Um, I, um, the rules are a secondary thing for me. I, I like the um, the creativity, the tactile part of the hobby, um, the converting, the painting, um, having a great looking force on the battlefield mm. uh, over you know how they min max or um, particular rules. Um, so, so, so for me, the first, th- the first thing that uh, goes comes to mind when I'm looking for an army uh, is a theme. I don't just want to have um, uh, an American War and Defense army. I want to theme it for something. So I base mine around um, the ba- the army at the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. Mm. Research the order of battle. Made sure that I built the um, the correct um, units in there. Looked at the the time period it was uh, fought in, made sure that the basing matches that that season, that kind of thing really, mm-hmm. really appeals to me. Um, British powers, obviously, uh, anybody who um, has seen Bridge Too Far mm-hmm. can only be can only be uh, uh, hooked by either the US or the British uh, paratroopers. Definitely, uh, it was e- easier for me to pick <clears throat> pick the British uh, because I already had one or two models. Um, in my collection for them um, and it's an army that uh, really appeals with the the camouflage rather than the uh, the green of the uh, the US airborne so it, it was a very easy thing for me for me to choose and you are definitely uh, a man who can paint I mean I remember your days from White Dwarf and um, you had just the most stunning white uh, space marine army that you know as a kid, I would look at and go, wow, I wish I could paint like that. So I, I can only imagine what your British camouflage looks like on those paratroopers. Um, but yeah, that just sounds great. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, the white scars do tend to crop up in conversation occasionally. Uh, the, the, yeah, the, the, I, I just spend a lot of time with the painting. I don't, I don't get to paint as often as I'd like. So often, you know, working evenings and weekends with, uh, you know, Warlord growing a pace um but when i do um I, I like to spend you know a significant amount of effort on them um i'm not the best painter in the world but it's certainly the it's the big part of the hobby that i love most 
Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm going to say I, I'm quite a fan of your painting and I'm going to leave it at that. Now, uh, I, I know that there will be several people who tune into this podcast because it will have a lot of bolt action content. Um, if there's a bolt action person who, a player who is very interested in what you're saying about the American uh, Revolution or the War of Independence or Rebellion, however you want to say it, um, I know that that was the uh, the historical, if I was to say any historical moment really called to me as a child, that was it. I grew up just a, literally a stone's throw from Lexington Green, where the, the shot that fired, or, you know, heard around the world that started that war um, was fired. And, you know, as a, as a school kid in that area, it's drummed into your head. Oh, the, you know, the brave patriots fighting off the, the evil redcoats. And so I know which side I'm playing. Um, but which, <laughs> just saying. Um, so we may be slightly from different sides of the pond on that one. But uh, so what rule set, um, if someone's interested in the War of uh, American Independence, how, how, could they be in, how could they find out more about that? The, the first protocol I'd suggest is um, the uh, supplement for Black Powder Rebellion, written by Stephen Jones, who um, is something of an expert, uh, a fantastic gamer and painter in his own right, mm-hmm. um, and uh, is quite possibly one of my favorite um, supplements, not just because of the uh, the subject matter, but the way it's presented and written. Uh, some fantastic photography. That'll, that'll give you a good potted history of that war from start to finish. Loads of scenarios, um, plenty of army lists. Um, obviously, you'll need the, the Black Powder rulebook to, to play with it, but right. even if you pick it up for, for kind of background uh, and dipping in, um, I would wholeheartedly recommend Rebellion. I may have to place an order in the morning because uh, <clears throat> it's one of those things where, you know, I look at it and go, oh, I don't I don't know anyone who knows anything about that. And the second I actually talk to someone who knows something about that, the little goldfish in my head goes, oh, that sounds good. Um, and, well, well yeah. we, we do we do do mo- um, models for um, the glorious British and for the bad guys. So you can take <laughs> your pick. The horrible uh, the what is it? The. Uh, the revolutionaries. I'm trying to think of a good negative word. <laughs> Ungrateful, I think, is the word we're looking for. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, well, you know, eh, eh. Uh, my mother did work next to uh, the Boston Tea Party site. So uh, <clears throat> I, did, I, I do have an interesting opinion about that. And as a, an Australian school teacher, I do occasionally read the book Johnny Tremaine to my class. So they get to see another side of <clears throat> British history. Uh, so uh, moving on. Let's get to what everyone wants to talk about. Now, you and I will have plenty of opportunity to talk about different game systems and things that interest us in future podcasts, because this is going to be a reoccurring segment in just about every one of these Warlord casts that's coming up, where you come on and you get to talk about you know, things that interest you and that are happening at Warlord HQ, and I get to ask you about all the cool stuff that you're up to. But... This is the part that whenever I've had, uh, as you were talking about, John Stollard on to m- one of my podcasts in the past, this is what people always yell and scream at me about, that they want more of. So let's, let's start with what, let's give the people with what they want. What's coming up? Now, there's been quite a few little podcast leaks about bits and pieces of things that are coming. Um, what can we talk about? Now, I know for a fact that... <laughs> I'm really excited being a fan of 2000 AD comic books that you've got a little something special up your sleeve. You want to talk about that? Cause I'm really keen. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, later this year, we've got the first of our um, games coming out for the license we've taken out with Rebellion for 2000 AD. Um, nice. I'm super excited about this. Um, I grew up with 2000 AD. My, mm-hmm. I'm looking across the room, and I see my collection of back issues. Um, you know, Dread, Staunch, Trunchy, and Dogslate, all of those things are, are staples of my youth um, and have stayed with me throughout. So uh, I, I cannot wait for this. Uh, I'm playing um, a game with Andy Chambers and Gav Thorpe, who many of you will have heard of from the time at Games Workshop in particular, oh, yeah. who are developing the game for us. Um, the game system is... Um, very low scale in terms of the number of models so mm-hmm. it could be anything from two to ten models oh, in wow. general obviously obviously it'll scale up yeah um if you want but you know your average game or the games that we've played so far have uh, been anything from uh johnny alpha and wolf sternhammer versus um you know um three sticks brothers and some goons and some wasters mm-hmm. uh, to gang on gang action um uh, it's um, going to have um, campaign rules, uh, experience rules, uh, plenty of cool um, mechanics in terms of um, cards for um, um, you know uh, backstabbing and armory cards, and, and it's playing really, really nicely. Um, and the plan here is that Andy and Gav are developing uh, a core rule set, a uh, core system. Mm-hmm. Uh, starting out with strontium dog um but the plan is that future games for this license use the same system and we just reskin it mm-hmm. and tweak it for um the the particular feel of that strip so for slain obviously being a fantasy um fantasy comic strip um it's not so much about guns uh, it's much more about yeah man-on-man action and plunging swords into the hearts of your enemies right uh, so it does have a, a different take. Um, similarly, if we were to do one based on the ABC Warriors, that would probably be the ABC Warriors versus um, their Volgan counterparts. And again, mm-hmm. it's a different vibe, but the underlying system would be uh, would be about the same. Uh, that's coming out um, later this year. Um, it's still being developed. As I say, we're, we're having a playtest game this afternoon. Right. And, um, yeah, the models coming through are looking exquisite. Um, and uh, I'm really looking forward to being able to show those off once we've got some of them painted. Nice. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. Having read a number of those comics growing up, Dread in particular. Now, I have to ask, are, I know you guys already at one point have done the Dread miniature game, is Dread going to get a look-see in with this rule set as well, or is Dread going to stay sort of in his own box? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, for, for me, Dread is um, the jewel in the crown of the 2000 AD license. It's certainly exactly. the most well-known, most popular. Even if you're not into 2000 AD, you would have seen um, the recent film with Carl Urban and the other one, which we don't talk about. <laughs> yeah, no, we don't talk about that one. Uh, but actually, yeah, you could talk about the first ten minutes because it was the first ten minutes yeah. was absolutely bang on. After that, uh, yeah. Anyway, moving on. You mean when he took his helmet off? Yeah, pretty much from that point on. Yeah, yeah. And the... so, anyway, so, so yeah, Dread, Dread is definitely getting uh, getting a gig. We, we obviously we, we were um, distributing uh, and selling the mongoose licensed mm-hmm. 
dread game um, a while back. We just felt that what we wanted to do is rather than roll straight into another dread game is give it a break, do something new, something out of the box, mm-hmm. uh, and come back to dread afresh uh, with a whole new look um, and a whole new range of miniatures. Uh, and maybe dread's the next one. I don't know. Uh, we're still talking about, you know, is it dread? Is it ABC warriors? Is it nemesis? Is it um, slain? Uh, do we do some of the, the, the newer, um, strips like Kingdom, Devil in War could be done. Mm-hmm. There's there's plenty of options out there, um, and we're looking to put out at least one game a year, um, starting with Strontium Dog this year. Fantastic. But Dread's absolutely certain. Uh, um, but we, what in my head, it's let's get Strontium Dog out there, um, and then look at what our opportunities are for Dread because that one has to be absolutely nailed on. Yes, definitely. Now, another game that I know a lot of people have been talking about that has had a lot of hype on your uh, website has been Blood Red Skies. Now, that is officially, I mean, there was pre-orders and a lot of things went out. Now, all of the the planes are coming out in the next month or so, right? Well, the the, um, Blood Red Skies game, obviously the the game of air combat, Mm -hmm. um, has been on pre-order for some time. And we've um, had notification yesterday that all the planes and all the games are now on a ship. And uh, we're we're tracking that on our our website. uh, So you can see the aircraft carrier uh, moving. Very nice. um, Yeah, we're we're hoping to, to see those fairly soon. Um, at this stage, we're probably looking in um, kind of back end of March um, for that to arrive, um, and, and hopefully things go smoothly through our glorious customs department. Yes, and uh, then distribution uh, distribution after that. Now, I, I've yeah. been really excited looking at all of the models that you guys have been showing and the the way that the game is playing. So I know a lot of people are excited. I should have said that is World War II fighter combat. Uh, I am definitely going to have a wing of Japanese Zeros. Uh, I don't know how or when that's happening, um, but as soon as I get my grubby paws on it, that's happening. Um, now, I, I have to ask, there's talk a plenty about all sorts of new things that are coming out, for example, for Conflict 47 and Bolt Action. I know those are both incredibly popular game systems. Um, for Conflict 47, just in the last week, we saw a pile of new releases, um, things for U.S. Marines, uh, amongst others. Uh, I'm assuming that we're going to see more of those models come out, the models that were featured in the Resurgence book before Defiance comes out. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah, um, definitely. We're um, actually having a visit from the Clockwork Goblin guys uh, tomorrow afternoon. They're Fantastic. popping over with some some new prints, uh, a catch up, um, and to talk about the future. Um, Defiance, as you mentioned, is the second supplement, which um, primarily introduces uh, the Italians, mm-hmm. uh, a divided nation. Um, so you've got the um, the Allied uh, version and the Axis version. Uh, and the models of those are looking absolutely superb. If any of you have seen them on the uh, various social media areas, um, oh, they look so good. They look, they're, they're brilliant. So, loads of stuff coming through for Defiance. Loads more stuff coming through for Resurgence. Uh, there's going to be no let up in releases for Conflict Forty Seven anytime soon. Now, I know I've talked about this on another podcast, but I think it does bear mentioning that a lot of people were when. 
when Bolt Action Version 2 came out and Conflict 47 came out before it, a lot of people said, oh, uh, you know, Conflict 47's rules may be a little bit too close to Bolt Action Version 1. We wanted something that was closer to Version 2. Well, that is what you get in the Resurgence book. The Resurgence book actually updates the rules. Not a lot of people seem to know that, um, but they really do bring uh, Conflict 47 into a, a more modernized rule set. Not that there was anything wrong with it before. I played it and loved it to death. But it really does uh, bring it into line with what you'd expect with Bolt Action Version 2. Are they the same? No. Are they very similar? Yes. Um, I play both religiously and love them. Um, and both are great. Um, is you want to add anything to that, Paul? Um, only to kind of... Uh, talk about the, the the thought process that was going on originally mm. with um, Conflict Forty Seven being based around the the original Bolt Action rules rather than being updated to to match Bolt Action Two. Is Conflict Forty Seven we saw as its own game? Yes, it's based on Bolt Action, mm-hmm. but you know we didn't want it to be just Bolt Action with some zap guns and some walkers and uh and some gribblies uh we wanted it to have its own own feel mm-hmm. uh so so it was it was firmly based on on first edition um but the feedback from the community was that they wanted it to go uh, down the same route as Bolt Action 2 so uh talking to the guys from Clockwork Goblin um we've decided to um you know push things in that direction as you rightly say in the resurgence supplement, um, it gives you all the uh, changes you need to um, to take it much more in line with second edition bolt action. Yeah, guys, if you haven't checked it out, uh, that is it is literally one of my favorite books that Warlords put out this year, and I have quite a few that I absolutely love. I love that book. It is so good. Uh, the fluff in it, the rules, the extra units. It's just a fantastic supplement. Um, it's just great stuff. And then the the new models that are coming out to back it up are just sweet. But anyway, I think it's probably, oh, sorry, sorry, jump in there for a sec. Yeah. I think it's probably worth mentioning that the, the, uh, aside from resurgence having the rules for second edition um, gaming, uh, probably the big thing really is the introduction of the Japanese um, oh, yeah. into the range, uh, which obviously plays um, out well for anybody fielding chindits or um, the British Commonwealth out in the, mm. at the Far East, US Marines. Um, but the the models are absolutely superb. Whilst we've yeah had great things from um, the original releases for the, the 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 major powers, I think people who have seen the Japanese have been absolutely bowled over. So I hardly recommend people have a a good look at those. Yeah, I personally yeah. play Japanese, and I have the um, I played Japanese in Bolt Action, um, and I actually converted a Winter Japanese army using the Warlord plastic. Um, Soviet models, so in the gray coats, and then I took, ah, I took, clever. yeah, thank you. So I took plastic warlord Japanese heads and um, metal warlord heads that you can order through your website, and I bought an army's worth, and I converted Japanese gray coats, um, and then a good friend of the cast, an amazing painter, Patch, painted the infantry for me. Um, I then went through and added a bunch of vehicles to it. And of course, then when Conflict 47 rolled out the Japanese, I had to get myself a Scorpion tank. And that is a beautiful model that I have absolutely loved painting and is just a lot of fun to see it scuttling around the side of the table. Um, And of course, having the extra new Chiha turret that has the the light compression cannon. It's just really neat rules. Um, And it's different 
Um, and it adds a new element to bolt action, but doesn't break the game, which is really nice. Um, it's always nice to see a new army add and it doesn't throw out because you know game systems in the past have often been accused of codex creep um i don't feel having played quite a few games with and against my japanese at this point in conflict 47 that they are in any way out of alignment with the other powers i just think they're it just adds a whole new flavor to the way the game system works um and yeah i just love it it's great so kudos to you guys Thank you. I think the, the, the one of the big successes of uh, Conflict 47, aside from the background and the great new models, is if you play in bolt action already, you only need to add you know, a handful of bits and pieces, uh, a walker here, a, a new tank there, and you've got yourself a new army for Conflict. You're not having to collect from scratch again. So I think that's been something where people have been playing World War II for a while, uh, and they just see this as an opportunity to, to kind of take a breath breath of fresh air, uh, have a breather, um, play something slightly differently, um, uh, and then you know, back to World War II eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that, that's probably been the, the big strength is you're, you're not starting from scratch. It's building on existing armies. So if you've got yourself a, uh, a World War II army already, mm-hmm. take a look at Conflict, see if there's one or two things that take your fancy and, um, and try that out too. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, having uh, I own... He says awkwardly, knowing my wife can hear me say this, I own 10 painted bolt-action armies um, because I'm that guy. And uh, as soon as the conflict rules came out, I was like, yep, I'll take one of those and one of those and one of those and have been slowly adding one or two weird units to my existing armies. Every time I go through a batch of painting things, I'll add a couple more weird units, and then all of a sudden existing armies pop into conflict perfectly but also it's important to remember that you can just take a regular bolt action army and play conflict 47 with it not all the armies that fought in that you know imaginary world used weird technology there were regular joes out there in regular gear you know what the government issued and so yeah anyway it's a great game um i think though we should probably move on to bolt action because Clearly, um, Warlord's done a lot in preparing everyone with great new models and the great new campaign book for Market Garden. Um, wh- what's sort of what's in the future for Bolt Action? Because I know people are looking at Amazon for pre-order pages and all sorts of other things. But let's talk directly to the horse's mouth. What's what's in the pipe for the for World War II gamers? Well, as you quite rightly said, Market Garden is the uh, uh, the current release, um, which covers uh the attempt to capture bridges and uh, speed british 30 core mm-hmm. um across the ride into the, into germany so that covers um u.s um airborne british airborne um german forces lots of great um troops uh, you know, um, training corps for the ss mm-hmm. uh, cadets uh, th- there's loads there um uh, the author chris um, Chris Brown um, is actually uh, an expert on Market Garden, having been published um, with several books of his own. Mm-hmm. So you'll you'll find that the details in there are absolutely bang on. Uh, and probably the thing that we've had the feedback most on is that it's not just about big games. There are plenty of really small games, you know, uh, very light actions, some compact battlefields, just the perfect thing for playing on a club night. Mm-hmm. So. That that's been a bit. That's been uh, a really uh, interesting period of feedback, and it's certainly something we will we'll consider going forwards. The next campaign book, um, which comes out later this year, is for the Western Desert. Oh yeah. So 
So this will cover um, Operation Compass uh, right the way through to the end of the North African campaign. Mm. It doesn't cover Italy, and, um, uh, Tunisia, etc. Um, we, we've tried to keep this focus very much on, on North Africa. Um, and it reads fantastically well. Uh, really, really captures the the gentlemanly nature of the war. Um, stacks of scenarios, loads of new selectors, uh, and we're backing this up with um, new plastics uh, and new rangers ourselves. So we'll be looking at the the Eighth Army. We'll be looking at Anzacs. We'll be looking at um, the Africa Corps, uh, Italians. Uh, covering all of those things, um, that'll be the focus of our efforts for Bolt Action for um, the next few months at least. Brilliant. I, as a lover of desert warfare and who owns three desert armies, I cannot wait for that book. It is, uh, especially the Italian parts, I'm, I'm, I cannot, with bated breath. Uh, but I, I think it does bear mentioning, as this is the official Warlord cast, that I think it's really interesting and cool that you guys don't just focus on the books that are coming out. So, for example, the Market Garden book comes out, and of course, right off the bat, um, around the same time, we get a new kind of tank. And you would think it would be one that may have been featured in that book. But no, we get the Panzer 38T um, box. Now, I love that Warlord... Yes, you guys do come out with great models that line up with your books, but you don't just leave people high and dry who want to play in other theaters or in other battles. You actually dribble out other models at the same time um, that really keeps, you know, people, you know, always checking your newsletter and wanting to buy new toys. Um, is that, a, I assume that's an intentional choice? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we first started Warlord, uh, one of our kind of key promises to ourselves and to uh, our customers is that we wouldn't leave gaps intentionally in, in ranges. Um, one of the things that, you know, uh, as a gamer myself uh, annoys me um, is when a manufacturer will start to produce a range and then they just drop off halfway through. Oh, we'll try, uh, uh, try our best to um, cover all the basics um, we may not cover everything in a short period of time, but we'll try wherever possible to make sure you know, that you've got a squad, you've got a, a machine gun, you've got a mortar, um, you've got some kind of light, medium and heavy vehicle, a, a transport, um, an anti-tank gun, an artillery piece. Uh, and those are the basics that that's almost our... Um, a covenant with with uh, our customers is that though that's the basics you can expect from us but over time we'll just keep adding more and more and more uh, and, and occasionally we'll do stuff that is completely off the wall uh, so um uh, yeah not all that long ago we produced a variant of the um sd kit at 234 mm -hmm. puma tank which uh, we, we just seen in a photograph um and only in one photograph where the turret had been replaced by that of a, a Panzer II Lux. Mm -hmm. And it was so cool that we just had to make it. Do we think we're going to you know, be able to retire off the proceeds? Absolutely not. Was it a fun thing to do? Was it uh, an educational thing to do to say, hey, look what we found? Because um, something myself and uh, a John are always talking about is we've been into World War II for you know, decades, uh, we live and breathe it. Yet, almost monthly, there's a new photograph. Oh, never even seen that before or heard of it. Um, and if that's the case, then we want to pass that on. 
both um, uh, in terms of the photograph, but also why not just make a model of it for fun? Um, and, and a lot of what we do with, with Warlord, uh, whilst it is a business, uh, and we have many mouths to feed at Warlord, mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's also about having fun, um, not only with um, the way we produce our uh, models and games, uh, but for personal satisfaction too. We want to be excited ourselves as gamers, uh, and if we're happy uh, and excited with uh, what we produce, we, we hope that that goes through um, to people that buy it. Well, it, 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 it at least worked on me because I saw, I guess it was two years ago, you came out with the Earthsats Panther, the Panther that had the extra metal plates um, welded to it to resemble an American, uh, I believe it was the Wolverine, um, so that it, they could, um, Scorsese's um, Panzer Brigade 150 could, um, you know, infiltrate American forces and, you know, defeat them from behind and to, to wreak havoc behind enemy lines. Um, anyway, you released that model and I went, okay, that's interesting. I'll have to look into that. And in looking into that, I ended up loving the army so much that I built and bought it or bought and built it, um, including that tank. So I'm a big fan. Um, I love it when you come out with these random vehicles because it makes me go on a little historical um, deep dive. And then sometimes that just leads me down a path of inspiration. So yeah, cool. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, the obvious stuff, you know, your Tiger Ones, your Panzer Fours, you have to do those because yeah. uh, they're expected and they're a staple. But sometimes you've just got to have a bit of fun, um, step outside of the, the mainstream and, uh, and do something that gets people talking. Uh, and in the case of the Luxturm, um, that certainly did the case. There may only have ever been one built, but it's caused such a lot of discussion. Mm-hmm. Um that um yeah i think our work here is done that's right plus rule of cool so yeah exactly yeah, yes rule of cool indeed now uh, i i would be remiss if i didn't talk about your other big gaming system now it would be, of course be gates of Antares. now uh, you guys have been kicking out even more races and new models but i know that there's a new race coming you want to talk a little bit about that yeah sure um our next supplement for Antares uh, is titled The Drone Scourge Returns. Uh, this int- introduces uh, uh, an entirely new race uh, known as the Virai Drone Scourge. Uh, this is a mechanical race. Uh, don't expect it to be bipedal humanoids like Cybermen, like Terminators. Mm-hmm. Um, this will be something very, very different. Um, um, the Virai are seen by all the other factions as something of a plague, uh, a menace that has to be stamped out at, um, before it gets out of hand. So um, it certainly adds a, a new element there, as well as it having a, a, a very different look. Um, the supplement is based on um, uh, a large abandoned spaceship, mm-hmm. Um so there's lots of rules for fighting confined spaces as well as you know, your normal normal games. It's written by Tim Bancroft, who people would be familiar from for from running our um, social media for Antares, oh, yeah. uh, as well as uh, writing plenty of fiction for mm-hmm. um, uh, Shaltok and Batu and Barry. And, and Tim's done a great job on this, uh, and 
um, the the models are looking fantastic, and I'm hopeful that um, in short order we'll be able to start previewing some of those. Nice, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing those. I do like a a robot cy- a cybernetic uh, race, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys do with it. And I know Tim is very passionate about the game, uh, much like I am with Bolt Action. He is to Gates of Antares, so I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what comes of that because I've got two painted Gates armies, and uh, I need to get some games. <laughs> Well, aside from the Viro, you've also got two other variant army lists in there as well. So um, anybody who's familiar with Tim's uh, writing will be familiar with Shaltok, um, his um, Gar Exiles. So this is another take on Gar. Obviously, we've got the Gar Empire, mm-hmm. which is uh, we're currently uh, portraying through Karg. Uh, and then we've got the uh, Gar Rebel Outcast, led by Fartok, the split mm-hmm. away that a completely different mindset well this um take that tim has is the gar exiles on the shell top they're people that they're still loyal to the empire but they perhaps don't follow cog's view of how it should be done interesting um, right on so you it, it just gives a different way of playing um the gar and, and actually be able to field um shell talk uh, shell talk sheep and some of the other units that you'll be familiar with from the fiction uh, and then also we've got um uh, a list for uh, privateers i guess space pirates is the closest thing you could call them oh, um, i love it uh, uh, of something of a variant within the the, the freeborn area mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and over time we'll be bringing out uh, some very very cool models for those but again it's just another way of fielding uh, models you may already have nice i love it um well okay uh, there's tons of models and i know uh, sadly our time is actually coming to an end um and i, I ugh, we'll just have to do this more in the next episode but before yeah, we go is there I know there's a lot of events coming up as well. Is there anything that you want to talk about um, that people should be aware of that Warlord's running? Well, in, t- in terms of events, um, we go to um, war game shows uh, around the world on a weekly basis. Uh, probably the best thing to do is uh, check out our events calendar on our website, uh, www.warlordgames.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and that'll tell you, you know, which is the nearest one to you, be it in America, Australia, um, Britain, Europe. Uh, for instance, the, this weekend, uh, our team are going over to Tactica in Hamburg, Germany. Uh, that's a, usually a fantastic show, uh, and they're currently cramming the vans with all manner of goodies. Um, so please go and check those out. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a good good chance they may have some pre-release stuff on there as well. Um, so so get there good and early and see, uh, see what they might have. Mm-hmm. No problem promises though um uh and obviously uh the big show for us in the uk is salute uh, mm-hmm. which is coming up in a month or two uh and just to kind of hark back to your comments on blood red skies uh earlier i know um a couple of the guys here uh, derek in the studio uh, and rich carlisle in our web team uh are putting on uh, a bit of a show with Blood Red Skies. I Ooh. won't give away the details yet, but the it, it'll look spectacular. Uh, if you're if you're going to salute, make sure you come over and have a look. Fantastic! I am really sad that I'm going to be on the side of the planet and I won't be able to make it. But uh, I'm hoping that you guys are going to be sharing pictures of uh, that event uh, through your social media because I know I'll be watching. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm hoping that we'd be able to get some form of uh, video uh, going there as well. But um, I'll leave that in the hands of our capable web team. Excellent, excellent. Well, all right, uh, Paul, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on your own podcast. And uh, it's it's just been fantastic. Thank you for coming on. Uh, and we are actually going to take a quick break, guys. Uh, but when we come back, um, I'm actually going to be speaking with uh, an a very established, uh, very experienced British paratrooper player. And we're going to talk through the Market Garden campaign and British paratroopers in general. I hope you stick around and I hope you really enjoy the show. If you have feedback for this episode, it being episode one or the quote unquote pilot episode, um, we would love to hear it. Um, now, Paul, I'm going to put this out there, but but if you'd like to talk to us, please find me on my usual Facebook page. That is the Cast Dice, C-A-S-T space Dice podcast. If you type that into Facebook, you will find the Land O Misfit Toys slash home of the Cast Dice uh, podcast. And that will be where you can message me directly. My name is Brad. Hi. Uh, and we would love any and all feedback. Uh, you loved what we did today, um, listening to the whole episode. Tell us. You didn't like what we did today. Tell us. You want to see more of a particular game? You want to see less of a particular game? Let us know. I mean, obviously, we can't make every single listener happy every time, but um, I think Paul will agree that it is our uh, goal to make this the best podcast it possibly can be and that we give Warlord fans what they want. Would you agree, Paul? Yeah, definitely. Um, your feedback is absolutely crucial. Yeah, because we we know what we'd like to see, but you, the listener, yeah, absolutely imperative that you 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 tell us what you do and don't like. We'd like to see more of, uh, and any new ideas that that we are perhaps aren't covering as well. Amen. Couldn't couldn't have said it better myself. All right, thank you very much, Paul. And we are going to go to a break. And when we come back, we are going to be talking Market Garden. Cheerio. Welcome to our very first exciting segment of this podcast. Now, I'm very excited about this particular part because I spent a lot of time researching it. Um, in the past, I've known quite a lot about um, you know different battles and different campaigns throughout the European theater. But this is one I'll admit I didn't know a ton about. And as I've researched for this particular segment in this podcast, I have learned so much about Operation Market Garden and all of the truly amazing things about the campaign. But before I do that, I think it is important that we introduce our guest. Now, I have a very special guest here from Victoria, Australia, uh, also another Melbourneian, uh, coffee drinkers and black wearing, um, I guess that's what we all do. Lee, welcome. Thanks for having me, Brad. It is fantastic having you. Now, Lee, you are on for a very specific reason. Uh, you are on because you are a very long-standing and established British paratrooper player. Yeah, correct. I've been playing British paratroopers since I started Bolt Action. Boom. And that's been, what, over two years now? Yeah, just over two years. Yeah. And now, if you haven't seen Lee's armies online, um, and by armies, I guess it's one army that he keeps adding to. It is sensational. And I'm hoping that uh, we'll be able to share some of the photos through the Warlord newsletter. Uh, but Lee's army is entirely Warlord? Uh, generally, yes. I've got a few parts from some other manufacturers in there. 
But the lion's share are, I was going to say. Oh, yeah, it's like 95% Warlord. Yeah, so. and so good. Yeah, there's such a good range of individual figures. Um, I'm actually able to run, like, without duplicates, quite a large force. Which is amazing when you actually look at Lee's models because because of the way that the, the models have sort of come together, Lee's actually turned um, parts of his bases, especially for infantry teams and for the guns, into little dioramas. Yeah, that's it. Trying to make it look like it's all part of uh, one force in a particular theatre and, and try to get some cohesiveness. Uh, so certainly adding in, I've got lots of little fences on um, some display bases for like my LMGs and artillery pieces. And then uh, some of my Jeeps are based on larger bases so I could have them like driving on a road next to a fence and trying to get that consistency. Yeah, absolutely. And what I really love, and something that has been mentioned on maybe other podcasts that I've done in the past, is one of the things that I love about Lee's Army is he keeps adding to it. And one of the things he's added to recently is a couple of units of well bikes. Now, when I say a couple, I mean, people think, oh, he's painted maybe five or ten. No. Tell us about the madness that is your well bike units. I may have uh, painted 24 well bikes at this stage. Um, so there's three units of eight. Uh, my general core force is uh, three units of paratroopers. Uh, what I did do that's probably a, a little extreme for some people is matching up each individual soldier to uh, the foot soldier to the well bike rider. So they've got, if I remove a well bike rider that has a red beret and an SMG, I've got a matching foot trooper. Yeah, and that speaks volumes about the individuality of the warlord models for you to be able to do that. It's just sensational. Yeah, just using a lot of different parts. I think, and this is uh, the bulk of it's been built prior to the plastic kit that came out late last year. So I've actually got that plastic kit as well and made a few extra weapon teams to get a bit of variety. But as far as base troops go, it's pretty much a core of three eight-man units. Fantastic. Well, I suppose we should get to our main topic, which is, of course, Operation Market Garden. Now, you might wonder why that particular... Operation? Well, we are talking about the new Warlord campaign book. Now, there have been several excellent bolt action podcasts that have covered the new Warlord campaign book called Market Garden um, that sort of cover all the forces for both Axis and allies throughout the very short but very poignant you know, pointing campaign. Um, there's actually been a couple of really good history podcasts that have done it as well. So rather than get into the nitty gritty of the line by line of every unit or every mission or the full history behind the podcast, we thought that we would talk about today, just give a general outline of what Market Garden is, and then really sort of get into, dig into, I guess, British paratroopers in particular. Well, at the very simplest level, Operation Market Garden is actually a combined force of two sort of operations, Operation Market and Operation Garden. Now, Operation Garden is sort of the the thrust of this, and it's the 30 Army Corps, the British forces, that are going to drive straight through the guts of the Netherlands from Belgium. And with that, they are going to drive almost straight up to the border of Germany, cross the Rhine River, and into the heartland of the Ruhr. So this this thrust is going to drive them almost 100 miles. Now that is pretty hard to do, um, given if you remember the Netherlands and Belgium in general, there are a lot of, if you think about the terrain, a lot of rivers, uh, a lot of wetlands, a lot of 
agricultural areas at that time. So in order to assist this happening, Operation Market comes in. And it was described as a, quote-unquote, carpet of airborne troops that would be laid out across that entire 100-mile strip to capture road bridges over major rivers and canals that lay along the route of the three sort of main areas uh, along the way. So Eindhoven, which is about 13 miles from the start line, Nijmegen, which is about 53 miles, so it's significantly further, and Arnheim, which is 64 miles. Now, when people talk about Operation Market Garden, they often talk about it being a bridge too far, because that is the movie that it was made about, uh, with that campaign. But What's often lost in that is people think that it was actually a campaign to capture the bridge at Arnheim because that was sort of the end result of where historically the campaign or the operation ended. Um, And it did, but that isn't taking into account that it was actually, the operation was considered a failure. It actually failed. Now, Monty, the grand planner of it all, said later that he believed, and this is... Whether or not he actually said it is up to debate that it was ninety or ninety percent successful, and apparently that quote was put in the movie as well, which is why it's sort of the historical accuracy of the accuracy of the statement might be a little suspect. Now, the paratrooper portion of this was made up of over thirty thousand troops on the first day. Now that. That's really taking into account a huge chunk of American paratroopers who would capture the objectives around Eindhoven and Nijmegen and a huge number of British paratroopers and then later Polish paratroopers who would congregate around the, the Arnhem bridges. Um, now, now, one of the really interesting things about this was there were so many troops that they wanted to airdrop in that they actually, um, the British Air, Air Force, the RAF aircraft who would be dropping these in, um, and the associated other allied aircraft, said that they couldn't do it all at once. They were worried about operator fatigue and um, problems happening with such distances and hours of daylight, given that it was a shortened day at that point. So they actually broke the drops for the operation. They divided them into three days. Now, that was not necessarily what the paratrooping forces were really interested in. Um, and oftentimes they were dropped not very close to their objectives. The, for example, uh, the British paratroops had to hike something like eight miles to get to their objective around Arnhem. Now, that actually played into their favor a little bit because uh, Germans who were used to or had been briefed on paratrooper operations of which there were units around the Arnhem bridges, they were expecting, they actually confused them because they were expecting paratroopers to jump near or on their objectives because that is what German paratroopers would do. Or they would jump directly into an airport to capture it. Now, that is in a roundabout way kind of how the operation's supposed to work because I said that the operation was supposed to get past these bridges. Well, ultimately, it was supposed to get to airstrips north of Arnheim um, where the 52nd Lowland Division would be dropped in once the 30 Army Corps could drive up through these bridges uh, to take that airstrip. And that would help hasten the end of the war, and everyone said, and it's a famous quote, that the war would hopefully be finished by Christmas of 1944. Now, of course, that had been said previously, so, but in this case, it, it should be, we shouldn't think back as at, at the 
I don't know, we do expect at this point that the Germans will strike back because we are looking back through a historical lens. But if we think back to, at that point, the Germans seem to be in, not a rout, but in a heavily state of disarray. They were being pushed back and back and back. So this was not a completely out there plan. Now, if you watch a lot of documentaries, as I have been this week, and I've read some articles and some books on the subject, there really is a lot of speculation about why this operation failed. Now, it was the last major uh, British failure in World War II, and it was considered a failure, but it was the largest airborne operation ever, and it was the it had the highest accuracy rate of any Allied airborne drop ever. So these troops landed with precision accuracy, which given the short amount of time is pretty amazing. Now, of course, you can think back to Operation Deadstick, um, where they dropped gliders pretty much next to, if not on, to, on top of Pegasus Bridge, and think, okay, that was pretty accurate, and it was. But we are talking about, again, massive amounts of troops being dropped in. Um, they weren't kidding when they said, you know, a wall of paratroopers between point A and point B. Now, this does sort of enter an interesting realm because as ambitious as a plan as this was, some even called it audacious, um, it did sort of rely upon the Germans to maybe not offer the stiff resistance that perhaps they've known for in the past. And ultimately, they did. Um, within literally minutes of the 30 Army Corps progressing forward, um, they, a number of their tanks were destroyed by Panzerfaust, um, blocking the road. And that ultimately kind of slowed the progress down. Um, now, one thing I should mention is 30 Army Corps was pushing up one road. It was a dual track, at times not finished road, that um, was often elevated from the surrounding areas around it. Now, there was dense forest that they were driving through during certain parts. But during other parts, it was just open fields with the road that went up making sort of a, a shooting gallery almost for British artillery and guns. And that is sort of the scene that we have set. Now, Lee, you are the British paratroop man. Um, would you like to talk to us a little bit about how British paratroopers fared? I mean, they were the farthest away, and they had maybe some of the most audacious um, plans as for what they were supposed to do. They're supposed to grab that bridge and hold it. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So you're speaking earlier about the sort of, I suppose, the failure of the operation as a whole. But I mean, individual parts of it were quite successful. Um, certain bridges were captured by the Americans and the Polish and um, quite rapidly. Uh, some other problems that caused failures were the Germans managed to blow up some bridges and that slowed down the 30th Corps. They were delayed for a day while they had to build a pontoon bridge across one of the rivers. That's right. Um, so that just ground everything to a halt. Now, when you're planning to drive, we talk about it these days, 160 miles, hour and a half, but you know we're talking they were planning days to travel that distance. Tanks Absolutely. don't move that fast. You need a supply line. Um, the British in particular, uh, they ended up having a lot more resistance than they had planned. There was some uh, poor intel. There was a number of extra German units in the area. Um, there was basically three different sort of sections of German commanders in the area, and they all reacted pretty quickly um, with a combination of uh, fast troops in transports, basically rushed the bridge mm -hmm. at Arnhem um, and secured one end. The British grabbed the other end, and they basically spent nine days fighting over it. 
Some of them got across. Um, they got surrounded. They ended up literally running down to their last bullets. That's right. Um, that's how long it sort of took. And they, they sort of grounded out. They're very stubborn. Took massive casualties overall. Um, but they were, you know, holding until relieved. Unfortunately, that relief just didn't come. And it got to the point where the commanders just called it a day and said, we've got to just pull out. Now, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned some of those German units. Um, there were two SS units that were present at the time that um, intelligence hadn't quite known about. And that had to do with the fact that they had been sort of pulled back from the line and they were being refitted. Now, they were heavily decimated, um, but they still were, you know, proper SS anti-paratroop trained forces that had been part of um, the the defense again on Normandy and then in some of the campaigns after that. Yeah, so you're talking about veteran units that were there doing a refit. So a bit of R&R for the troops and then equipment restock, um, getting uh, new troops into their units to, to bolster them back up. Uh, there was also some training units in the area, so mm-hmm. some very green soldiers, um, but equipped with you know modern equipment for the day, um, as well as some very old equipment. There was a number of older captured vehicles in the area mm-hmm. that the Germans were using for training. Uh, the Char B1, they had mm-hmm. a flamethrower version. It's uh, actually in the new book. Um, it's, you know, one of those cool vehicles that you wouldn't expect, but it was there and operational. Yeah, uh, apparently they even had a uh, six rad, which, you know, you hadn't seen since literally the early days of the French campaign because it had an unreliable axis, uh, sorry, axle system. Um, I have had one of those for years, and, you know, I'm not one who usually play early war Germans. I just loved the way the Warlord model looked, and so I painted one up, and it's been sitting in my case. And imagine my joy when I opened this book and found a, you know, a, a, it's, I guess it's a late war German list, but it's a list that allows me to use my six rad with the remaining bits of my original army. So excited. Um, but as you say, they, they did have this, I mean, there was this really interesting mix of German infantry um, that opposed the British. And one of the things that they did um, that was really sort of held up that some of the British forces were because they were anti-paratroop trained, um, they were able to create defensive lines to they try and block paratroopers from their objectives and from their resupplies. Now, um, logistics is one of the big problems in a lot of campaigns, just having the bullets and the supplies, um, you know, given to you. Now, when you're dropped in, that becomes extra hard because you don't have those lines of support to get your wounded out, to get um, reinforcements in, to get the bullets in ca- when you start fighting, especially when you are... I mean, in paratroops, you literally just can't get it unless they're dropped in on you. Um, and one of the things that these German units did that was so effective was they actually, um, they actually kind of... Uh, according to some sources, captured some of the plans so they knew where some of the restock sites were and they created lines that kept the British from actually being restocked. And so the British watched their supplies being dropped and they couldn't get to them. The Brit- the Germans had just held them off. Yeah, I, I think that's the key thing when it becomes very obvious that you've got a large train of tanks coming up one road You've got a number of bridges in the area. The Germans knew that these were sites that would be potentially captured or attacked at Mm. one stage. Hence, they had troops stationed around them. A number of them were wired for um, demolition. Mm -hmm. So if worse came to worse, Germans could demolish them and deny them to the uh, Allies. Uh, So effectively, it would be quite easy to actually say, oh, hang on, they're coming up this road. They're going to be going this way. We can cut off a road here and, and cut supplies. 
And that ultimately is what happened um, and to a number of the bridges, um, which is what really did slow down the 30 core. Yeah, and the important thing is 30 core met up with uh, the American groups, um, but it was quite uh, easy for the Germans to cut the road and then the British would have to then punch through again. So you could cut across, blow up some tanks, create a, a blockage, take time to clear it. They'd then have to come through and then push the Germans off that objective again before they could get rolling. And so that really slowed things up. So the whole problem was things became stop-start. It wasn't a smooth run from Belgium through to the German border. It was a very drawn-out, slow thing. And, it, I mean, it even came down to, and what some, I guess, documentaries point to as one of the failures of the operation was the cooperation between the American and the British soldiers. So at, at one point, the... It, so about half, more than halfway. So at nine Megan, which, you know, if you think about the three objectives is halfway, but is actually 52 miles in, we're only about 12 miles away from Arnhem at that point. And the, the British tanks come in. American paratroopers are so happy to see them. They rush out. They literally, there's stories of soldiers kissing the tanks. Um, but the American paratroopers know the job and know what needs to be done and immediately turn around uh, grab as much ammunition as they can, turn to the tankers and say, we are ready to go. And the story goes that the British tanker said, uh, now hold on, buddy. We're going to wait for our um, support troops so we can drive forward. Now, whether or not that's entirely true, I mean, the one of the commanding American officers said that story in a documentary. Um, and so you would think it's accurate. However, with the the fogs of war and time, it could be anecdote. So long and the short of it is, even if that happened, I mean, tanks are used to working with certain troops to support them. And if these British tanks weren't used to working with American paratroopers, they maybe weren't so comfortable with, you know, the support they might get. And tanks in World War II definitely needed infantry support. So it makes sense. Um, but again, it was just one more instance where they waited overnight before driving forward the next day. So if we think about paratroop tactics, and we did talk about this a little bit earlier, if you, if you think about how paratroopers work, they jump in, they have to get to their objectives as quickly as possible. Otherwise, you know, defenders have time to create proper obstacles, defenses, and keep them off the defenses at which point it as in the case with this operation they grabbed the objectives and then they had to be pushed off it now that makes for if you think about it running forward striking quickly grabbing the objective well that makes for really interesting gameplay and that's where the warlord campaign book comes in now adding to that you have this incredibly cinematic situation and you can understand why hollywood made an epic movie around this it so you have the heroic paratroopers who have jumped significantly behind enemy lines and they have an almost impossible task ahead of them. They're audacious, they're courageous, and they drive forward, they succeed, they get to their objectives, they hold the bridge, and then they have to hold on as the, you know, as the 30 Army Corps drives towards them through enemy territory, through bridge after bridge after bridge that is being held for them. Amazing stuff, right? Well, that really does make for a very interesting campaign book. One that's a lot different from some of the other campaigns and theater books that we've seen in the past. Um, now, previously, and I think I've talked about this on a podcast in the past, with the Battle of the Bulge, 
campaign book, that was a very short period of time. And we were able to see specific units and really specific scenarios that involved a lot of those units in a really interesting way that maybe we hadn't seen in a lot of books before. And we talked about how it was a compressed scale um, of time and how that really helped. It was a magnification of the whole, of the, the theater, the people who were part of it, and you know the units involved and the actions. Well, this is even tighter. It's like a magnifying glass has been zoomed in. Lee, can you tell me exactly how many days was this beginning to end? Nine days all up. So it's quite short when you think about a military campaign, which is trying to take over an entire country effectively. Exactly. And we're talking about like 100 miles span, but it's not a wide front. It is very, it's very narrow. And so the way this book is written is, in a, it's really interesting. So unlike a lot of other books, we usually are used to having a glut of scenarios in Warlord's campaign books. And this one has... 26 missions, which to my knowledge is something like six more than the book, any book prior to it. Uh, But what I really like at the beginning, and it helps set the stage, is that there's a timeline. Now that's not new. That has been in several Warlord books. But this one has, as it goes through the timeline, day by day by day, it actually lists in order on which date, in which area, each scenario in the book is used. And I just think it's really well done in that regard because if you wanted to play just all of the nail-biting moments of this campaign and you're not sure, oh, where did that fall in the piece? It is so cleanly and easily laid out. And the maps in this book really do lay it out in a way that you can very clearly see who's where, how you're supposed to set it up. And just some of the really amazingly... Uh, exciting moments from these battles. Now, as I said, we aren't going to go through every little bit and piece, but I am pretty excited that we've gone from having one selector, for example, if we're talking about British paratroopers, to a whole range of troop choices that really blow out the army uh, and expand it past what we may have expected, for example, may have been used to Pegasus Bridge. Um, Now, Lee, you have an army that, as I said, is quite large uh, for British paratroopers. Now, I know for a fact that your force isn't necessarily historically based on one uh, battle, but in a way is. Can you explain that? Because I think it's really interesting. Yeah, so I started off a few years ago when I first got into bolt action. The paratroopers just caught my eye. I've played um, other sort of World War II historical games uh, in the past using... um, I got a German Tiger Battalion and uh, another force was an American mechanized force. Um, so I wanted to do something sort of a bit different that I hadn't done. Uh, I'm not afraid of painting camo. Uh, it's a bit more time consuming, but you can get a good effect out of it. So I decided to pick up the paratroopers and initially looking through the British uh, Army book at the time, uh, there was a theatre selector there for Market Garden. And I sort of went, okay, well, let's have a look at what that allows. Um, It seemed to cover the sort of things that I wanted. Um, So I effectively collected and built based on that theatre selector. Um, So I said to myself, I can take three recce jeeps. So I got three recce jeeps and and built them up and just sort of worked on that sort of process for as far as building and expanding over time. Um, So effectively, I could could run any combination within there. when we talk about specific uh, theatres, so Normandy, Pegasus Bridge, we talk about Market Garden, 
I sort of theme things different ways for different events. I tend to play sort of four or five events a year um, locally. And sometimes I'll look at a Normandy selector type list um, and take some Pathfinders, for instance, as an additional unit. Uh, they're not uh, necessarily, well, they, up until now, they weren't actually in a specific British list, but through the um, Battleground Europe book, they're available. And, you know, painted them up as actually American uh, 86, all-American unit, um, just as sort of a bit of a combined arms look, uh, something a bit different. All right, well, let's talk about the new Warlord book then. So, as I just said, uh, the campaign book for Market Garden adds a ton of new units for British paratroopers. Now, I'm really interested in what your opinions are, given that you really do have, at the, up until this book's release, you really do own every British paratroop model that Warlord Games makes. So, there was a new range of models that came out with this, but more than that, a whole lot of new units that would allow you to adapt and change, especially now that you have the plastics, you can really add to your force. So let's talk about what has this meant for your army? Uh, it just opens up some new options, particularly with the new theatre selectors in there. Um, the, the addition of some new units, uh, some new models, just means you get more variety. So I think one of the key ones for me that I noticed in the new book was under the old market garden list, you could take a 17-pounder artillery piece, mm -hmm. but the list didn't actually allow you to take a tow vehicle, uh, which was a bit at odds because you couldn't actually move it around, which means on a mission, if you couldn't actually deploy it on the table, then it's stuck off the table and it's a bit of a point sink. That's right, because it's a super heavy AT gun, and if you don't have a tow, you literally cannot push a super heavy anti-tank gun around on the table according to the rules of bolt action. Yeah, correct. Uh, so what's been good in the new book is that they've released a cut-down quad tractor. How good does that look, right? It looks pretty good. I, I actually had mine arrive in the mail during the week, so oh. I've got a, all the new models actually I uh, have sitting there, including the little hand carts. I don't know what I'm going to do with those, but I'll come up with something. Uh, so there's a variety of new things. It opens up list options. So particularly with the new theatre selector, I can now take a 17-pounder and have a tow for it, which means I can run a list with that. Considering sometimes uh, some of the local guys like to run bigger tanks, mm -hmm. it becomes a bit harder with just running around with piats, trying to take things out up close. It'll give me a, a bit more flexibility. I think one of the other interesting things is a lot of the new units in the book are smaller sized. There's a lot of four-man, five-man, six-man sized units. That's right. There's some that allow you to take up to 12, like the um, glider platoons. Mm -hmm. But a lot of them are much smaller specialized units. So it's really different to what you sort of get out of the general British Army book or, or any Army book, really, uh, when you talk about core troops. It provides a bit more variety. I think the important thing is some of those theatre selectors are actually going to be really good with some of the missions in the book. Agreed. So they really line up. And you don't necessarily want to be playing a 1,000 points on some of these. I think there's some very good five, 600-point armies that you would run Agreed. Um, to try and be quite, uh, I suppose, setting up the actual missions and the actual units that were there and, and being able to represent those clearly on the table. One of the things that I really like about this is prior to this in the British book, to my knowledge, there was not British glider troops. Um, in the American book, you got a very clear distinction between American paratroopers and American glider troops. Um, and though they wore the same uniform, they had different kit. Uh, and in this book, we actually get our first proper uh, selector to allow you to take British air landing crews, um, the guys who rode in on gliders and had different gear. Now, that's pretty exciting for you because it means you get a whole, I mean, 
technically they wore the same uniforms. Yes, they had different insignia on them, but if you are playing 28 millimeter models, that's not going to appear that much. Your troops work for both. So you actually get an entire new army out of this. Is that pretty cool for you? Yeah, and the thing with the glider troops is uh, they're very similar armed, but what I've noticed is they've actually got less access to SMGs, for example, Mm. a lot more rifle armed troops. Uh, And the key thing with the glider platoons was they were the guys who came in with the jeeps, with the artillery pieces, you know, with mortars, that kind of thing, that the paratroopers just couldn't drop in with because it's just heavy equipment. You couldn't do it in the time. Um, So, you know, they had very specific gliders that were built specifically around fitting in jeeps, fitting in light tanks, fitting in certain equipment, uh, and then just basically coming in as big groups and being able to drop a large amount of men and equipment in the one spot. That's right. And I got to say, I was flipping, when I was reading through the book earlier and flipping through the pages, um, the, one of the first boxes, because they always have fun little boxes in these books, I um, mean, one of them said folding bikes and well bikes. And I thought of you immediately, because I, I mean, I know the rules are in other places, but how good is it for you as someone who's got 24 of those things that you actually have the rules for them in a new book and it, they're the hotness? Yeah, it's going to be good to uh, get them out for a few more games, I think. I think they're... As a model, uh, as a rule and usefulness within the game, I, I don't think they're worth the points, to be honest. I think they look cool. It's the rule of cool. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they're very limited in what they can do for that extra effort. Now, I've played against your well bikes a, f- a couple of times, but let's actually talk about them in game. So for one point, uh, you get to basically, if, if, the, if for the first round of the game, um, they can double their run to 24 on roads. Um, but anytime they're given any order other than run um, or they get a pin marker of any kind, they automatically dismount and throw away their bikes. And you have to replace the models with models on foot, right? Yeah, correct. So... When you think about it in game terms, uh, you're effectively doubling the footprint that the unit takes up because yeah. you're going from effectively you know a 25 mil base up to I use uh, the 50 mil pill shaped bases. Yep. Um, so you're sort of doubling the size, and then you want to sort of spread out a little bit so you're not all clumped up for you know template weapons and, and artillery. Uh, so you, you tend to take up a bit of space. You're then also inhibited. You can't ride over walls. You can't run over walls. Um, so you're going to be dismounting quite a bit. Uh, unless you play on very road-heavy tables, depending on what your local group or yourself mm-hmm. does, uh, you're not going to see a lot of advantage. I think 90% of the time, they are literally just a hindrance more than a help. Uh, but on those occasions when you do get a nice road and you can hammer 24 inches up in the middle of the table, get into some cover behind something, it, it's quite advantageous to have that mobility for a, for a veteran unit that can then be quite uh, stubborn to shift out of position for eight points too i mean yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty good yeah. i mean albeit you're running 24 of them so yeah. it's 24 points but still if you if you had one or two squads with that um now i know we do tend to play on boards with a lot of terrain and part of that terrain often involves roads so i know that on some of the games that we've played that's actually been really you know leads to you having some aggressive um opportunities that I immediately put me as your opponent on on the back foot. Yeah, certainly. And I think that's the thing. You can afford to be aggressive with paratroopers. They are, you know, I mean, you're paying the points for them, but they're veterans. So they're harder to kill. 
Um, when you're running units, I, I run units of eight generally, sometimes seven, sometimes nine, depending on my list uh, and where I've got some movement. Uh, but you can afford and to literally push them up and put them behind some cover. If you can get hard cover and your opponent's having to shoot at them, they're harder to hit, they're harder to shoot, harder to kill. You can choose to go down if they haven't activated that turn, make them even harder to hit, and they're very hard to shift. I think my general uh, strategy is in most games with objectives is to push forward. You're going to take some hits on the way in, take a pin here or there, but you've got the command leadership to be able to just keep moving and then just get up to that objective and then just sit on it and say, come and get me. Um, I generally take the toughest boots national mm-hmm. rule as a benefit, which gives me additional attack for every three guys in close combat, um, which means I'm also able to take on and weather assaults a little bit better. Which actually ties in beautifully with what we were talking about with paratrooper, actual paratrooper tactics in real life. And I think that the British paratrooper rules really do fit um, the the Red Devils as they were. Uh, because if you think about it, so you have to charge forward, grab that objective, and then hold it. And having played you a number of times, not only do you have that tough as boots rule, and not only are your troops veteran, and that really does assist you in getting to the objective, taking the objective. Um, you have a number of troops with SMGs, but you also have the rifles to reach out and touch someone. You have the LMGs if you need to really reach out, um, but you have the bikes and you have um, some Jeeps to actually get in and be really aggressive quickly. But then you get to those objectives and just like real paratroopers, you dig in and that's when the stubborn rule kicks in. So why don't you talk to us about how the stubborn rule plays in? Because I know it's a big part of your tactics. Yeah, so with stubborn, you whenever you have to take a morale check, you're always taking it at a natural 10. You're not taking any pin penalties. So that means that if you uh, lose half your unit through casualty, someone hits you with a, a four-inch HE shot and you're just watching your guys evaporate, um, you're still only testing on a 10 regardless of how many pins. Same with flamethrowers and all those sorts of things. That means you just stick around for a lot longer. Um, and then having a natural 10, if you do a rally order, you can just strip most of those pins away. Now, I play a lot of NKVD and Japanese armies, and when I do, I often have a lot of troops with Fnatic, and I always think, Fnatic stops working when you have one guy left. The last man in the unit thinks, oh, oh, this is bad, I'm out of here, I'm actually not going to be Fnatic anymore, and you run, and I always think that that's the rule for your stubborn guys, and you always have that one guy on the objective that I just, you know, you just got to shift off, and you have to actually, if you're the opponent, you have to carefully think about how to get rid of everybody um, because that can be a real hassle otherwise if you're trying to clear someone off an objective in the last turn of the game all of a sudden he has one guy left and you're contesting yeah and i've certainly had several games where i've had a lone trooper sitting in soft cover on an objective and basically just going down every round and just taking the pins because You've got to cause 10 pins on him as an individual in order to do an auto wipeout and just making it hard to hit him. And then if you do get a pin, you then need a five to kill him. It's just, he's just so resilient to just sit there on an objective in cover. It's amazingly historical. And you really do feel like, you know, you're up against the best of the best if you're playing on a tabletop, Um, but not in a way that, I know, I, at least I've never felt hard done by when playing against your armies. It just, it feels like, you know, you you are tough, you are elite, and you're hard to shift. And that, I think, really plays nicely. So I, I really enjoy uh, the paratrooper rules for uh, bolt action in general, but I think in particular the way that you run them. Now, you typically 
I mean, we play in a lot of events down here, um, and we play a lot of games, you and I, but we typically don't play using theater selectors. We typically play just plain reinforced platoons. But you use the theater selectors. I do the same thing, but I want to hear you talk about how you do it with the British, um, how you use the theater selectors and actual, um, I mean, when you came tonight, you came with a, a pile of Osprey books um, and other texts that you use for historical reference to create your army. Um, so talk to us. How do you use history to build your army? Yeah, so I do a bit of research. Uh, so in regards to the paratroops, I've got a number of books around um, Market Garden, obviously, then uh, also um, some of their earlier actions. Um, and, and it's really around looking at what the general theme of what they were trying to achieve was and, and fitting in around that. Um, so they've got access to two light tanks, for instance, the Tetrarch and the Locust, um, which they didn't use very often. There was only like four or five engagements where they actually dropped them in in gliders. They actually built a specific glider to carry them and then they didn't really use them because by the time they actually got out and into production, it was the vehicles and the, the anti-tank weaponry of the um, Germans sort of our superior them, if you will. Mm. Um, so they became a bit redundant, but... You know, they're still cool little tanks, but as far as they go, they're basically just little machine guns, light tanks. They don't really do a huge amount, mm-hmm. um, but they're priced accordingly and they, they sort of add a bit of flavor and um, they're quite easy to hide behind yes. anything because they're quite small. Mm-hmm. Um, not as small as some of the Polish tankettes and, and a few of the other early war ones, but uh, they're, they're a bit different. Um, so, yeah, look, I generally try and find something that um, matches in, so... Pegasus Bridge, you know, they were pretty much just foot troops that went in. They didn't really have um, any AT with them. They didn't have anything heavy. They didn't have Jeeps or anything like that. Uh, When you look at Market Garden, uh, the new theatre list for the Market Garden within the book um, only allows two recce Jeeps, not three like the Mm -hmm. old ones. So there's a few little tweaks here and there to have a look at. Um, Obviously, you've got the choice between the two theatre lists. Um, Occasionally, events don't allow theatre lists. Mm -hmm. Um, not sure what the experience around the world is, but certainly here in Victoria, we tend to sort of have a, a pretty open sort of thing. Uh, TOs use a bit of discretion to talk to people about toning down lists where they might be a bit over the top. Mm. Um, so where that is a situation, though, I, I generally just take a, a reinforced platoon, but just take everything veteran, just keep the same sort of thing happening. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I'm not someone who takes inexperienced mortars. I don't sit there and take regular troops with one veteran sniper. It's, it's not how I sort of run things. Right. And you also don't add things that weren't historically there. Um, I know, for example, I run um, a, a British Sikh army in the desert. And um, when I do, I have a Blackguard Bombard, for example, because I knew that um, Sikh or Indian troops use them in the desert conflict. And you know, I love putting it on the table. And I know in the past you've enjoyed using it when you borrowed that army, but you don't add that to your paratroopers because they never ran them. Yeah, correct. And there's a, there's a whole range of vehicles and, and odd weapons and, and things within oh, the yeah. bolt action universe that you can take through a reinforced platoon. I think it's it's really good to experiment. Um, I We've got an event this weekend coming up. I'm actually taking a Sherman tank. Actually, I'm taking two Sherman tanks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so having never run a medium tank before, I'm going to find it uh, a learning curve and a bit mm-hmm. different. We'll see if uh, I can actually make it work in conjunction with uh, a number of veteran troop units running around. Now I can hear a couple of people in the internet in the background saying, oh, paratroopers, uh, Sherman tanks. Um, the event that we're playing in this weekend was specifically themed around you taking a large tank or two in your army 
um, the the army. So the event is thirteen hundred points. So you get to take bigger toys and more of them. But people, rather than encouraged to take lots huge horde lists, the tournament organizer asked, "Hey, this is an opportunity for those people who have those big tanks who don't always feel like they have a chance to use them." Now that opened an interesting door for you, Lee, because. You didn't have any tanks other than a couple of really tiny ones. Um, so you actually had to go out and buy some, and you're feverishly uh, panel painting at the moment. Yeah, uh, I went and bought a, a Sherman um, platoon and uh, assembled them up the other week and mm-hmm. got them undercoated, and I've been panel painting. I, I finished the final panel painting on the turrets uh, this morning, and uh, I've still got a bit of, obviously, detail work to do tomorrow before... Hopefully get a varnish and, and get them on the table for Saturday. But uh, at this rate, I think they may be uh, not quite done. And that was the Warlord Sherman platoon that you got. Yeah. Now, so you didn't just... You were able to build several different Shermans out of that. Yeah, so the it's the Sherman V troop. So it comes with the late war Shermans. Uh, there's three in the kit. Uh, you can build two Sherman Vs and then one Sherman VC Firefly, which is the tank that's armed with a 17-pounder. So the super Ooh. heavy AT gun. Uh, they're all medium uh, nine plus tanks, uh, uh, but it gives you that sort of option to do a different variety. And that's exciting because, I mean, for, for you, you literally just have never done that before. So I know when we've played in the past and I've run an event where I provided all the armies and you got to jump around, I remember afterward you said, oh, so that's kind of what taking big tanks is all about um, because a couple of the armies had big tanks. Um, I just, I think it's really neat that you're able to uh, just add a historical tanks to your historical force um, that was, you know, that actually ran alongside. So you could almost run a what-if scenario as if the 30 core actually got to, you know, Pegasus Bridge. Yeah, if they actually caught up and there they were. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think the the interesting thing this week, um, knowing that there's going to be big tanks there, you know, I'm expecting there to be some tigers or panthers or something big and chunky that's going to be hard to kill. I needed that 17-pounder and I needed mm-hmm. to be mobile. Um, so that's why I've sort of put it into the list and, and running double platoon and having a, a normal 75 mil Sherman there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, d- didn't pack any Piats this time. I think they're probably going to be a, a bit too hard to keep alive in the format. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll see how we go. But you definitely run Piats regularly because I have run in fear from your Piat from more than I can, more times than I can count. Yep. Fear the mighty Piat. It's uh, people give it a bit of a bad rap. Yeah. Uh, but I think the key thing is it's it's a small team. It's a two man team. You can hide it quite easily behind a house, behind a forest. You can literally just run it for three turns. Your opponent will put something in front of you to shoot with it. Um, if you can move up to point blank range and you can get the shot off and you can stun a tank, um, it's still plus five on the penetration. Um, it's got shape charge, so it doesn't matter whether you're at twelve inches and you take a pot shot. Uh, it's it's does some damage and it's it's claimed some kills. It's claimed some Panzers. It's claimed trucks. It's claimed eight rads. It's it's got a variety of things under its belt. And what I really like about it is that people give it a, a large part of why some players poo poo the Piat um, is. They say that its range isn't very good. Well, no, its range isn't as good as a bazooka, for example. But it's not the same price as a bazooka. And it really does um, play into, as we were talking about earlier, that tactic of getting in, holding something, and making someone come to you. So I know one of the reasons why Lee's Piat is so scary for me personally is that he gets up on, uh, he aggressively grabs those 
uh, objectives and then holds them. And I have to come get him. And that's when that Piot is frightening because he puts it behind a wall. He goes down and then I have to get close to the darn thing. And then he pops out and puts a hole in whatever I was trying to force him off the objective with. It really is one of those great area denial weapons that really has a bad rep because I know I underestimated it. And yeah, do you, I mean, Lee, you're the user. Yeah, I think a lot of opponents underestimate the actual threat range on it because you can literally, their tank might be two feet away. You spend a turn, you run 12 inches. You're now 12 inches away. The next turn, you can actually stand still and take a shot at a tank. Mm -hmm. Or you can move another six inches and be point blank. Or effectively, if they're 30 inches away, you can move up and still take a shot at 12. And it's you're paying a, a penalty for long range and moving and those sorts of things. But sometimes, you know, going for that five, it's it's worth the risk. We have a look. We have a saying in Australia, and uh, it's one that I firmly believe in. Sometimes bolt action happens, and if you roll those dice, it's amazing what happens. It's amazing what doesn't happen, and it's amazing what does. So, um, yeah, I just think it's one of those weapons that you put in for the opportunity, and if it arises, man, it hits like a truck. Mm. There is one uh, theater list in the new book that actually allows you to take two piats in the one platoon, which I thought uh, is, a, is a bit of a, a risky one, but uh, it could be a bit of a fun one to try. Yeah, that would be rad. I'd love to see that on the tabletop. And by see it, I mean I hope someone else sees it and not me. But anyway, so besides British paratroopers, one of the things that I really noticed when I was watching a lot of documentaries and reading up about this campaign, I mean, I guess because it is so condensed into such a short period of time, as we talked about earlier, that it really did stick out in a big way because I would read about this heroic action about a specific unit or I would read about this unit that would get in the way of the paratroopers. Uh, and there was just so much going on on both sides. But you would find out about minute you know, personalities or units. And what I love about this book is um, I'd read the book, then I went and I did a lot of research and then I came back to the book. And when I went back with fresh eyes, I went, oh my God, that unit's in here? That's in here. Oh, that's what that is. And everything sort of lined up. You have everything from Dutch resistance troopers that you can, you know, add in um, that join forces with different... um, American and uh, British forces along the way. There's the the German Signal Corps. I mean, there's all sorts of great units. Um, Lee, what what's jumped out at you when you were looking at these? Uh, I think it's a lot of the newer units. As I mentioned earlier, there's quite a few, and they tend to be smaller squad size rather yeah. than what we sort of expect in a main rule book. Uh, you know, good examples. The first one you've come across in the book is the U.S. Pathfinders with a specific market garden tag on it. That's right. As opposed to the D-Day sort of landing pathfinders from the Battleground Europe book. Uh, so, you know, it's a much smaller unit. Six men, veterans, mostly units in this book are veterans. Uh, there are inexperienced as well, uh, but the majority are veteran units. And it's just the options that they come with. An exceptional training is a special rule they've got there, um, which they don't get stubborn, but they have exceptional training. So they're always testing on tens, uh, which is a bit of a bit of a game changer, I think. Agreed. I really, so when I was going through this, there was a selector for the, and I am not, my, I can hear the internet yelling at me as I try and say this, the 10th SS F 
Crew Lungs Battalion Reinforced Platoon. And it's an armored re- uh, reconnaissance battalion. Um, and it was one of the uh, sort of beaten up SS units that was being retooled um, away from the front uh, that was trained in anti-paratrooper tactics. But because it is an armored reconnaissance uh, unit, um, that has really interesting choices about what you can take. So you have your lieutenant and you, of course, have your two mandatory squads, um, which are five-man squads. Then you can take up to, as you were talking about earlier with smaller squad sizes, then you can take up to three more additional five-man squads, um, which you can tool up in a number of ways. Um, then you can take up to four uh, veteran grenadier squads, but these do uh, these may not have more than five men. So every squad you have in this army is five men. Um, no artillery options available, but you can take a triple two, which must be veteran, or a six red, which must be veteran, um, and you can take up to two of those. And then you can take up to two uh, tank or armored cars, but it's a very limited list. Um, there's some Panzer III, some Panzer IVs, and one of the um, STKFZ 250 Henomag half-track variants, the mortar carrier. Um, and you also could take up to one Tiger. Uh, and then you can take up to some half-tracks or a truck. So everything, I believe, has to be zipped up. And it just, as in uh, in a transport, and the the, the half-tracks have to be the small versions. So it's just a really original army. Um, if you take that, it's not going to be like any other German army I've faced um, or played. And I just love that we're getting selectors that really change the way that people list and the way that people play. Um, and I think it just really adds some exciting new uh, elements to the game. What about you, Lee? Yeah, I think if you can change up the way that people create their armies and how they structure them, you change the way that gameplay happens. Yeah. And it keeps things fresh. And it also helps to create armies that sort of fall within... I know that you and I both like to play um, roughly historical lists, like lists that really are based on what was there rather than what may be the most effective thing in the game. And as we see more of these campaign books coming out and we see more of these uh, theater selectors, I'm just loving that we're seeing new army lists and we're seeing those options that really do give us a lot different experiences if we want to list. You're not just trying to do the same thing every time. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it drives players as well and the community to sort of try and theme things and do a bit more research and get a better understanding. Uh, I know that I'm working on my next army at the moment and I've been doing research on it before I even bought some models like I sort of had this idea and I went and read about it Mm -hmm. and then looked at well how would that fit into a theater list and what theater lists sort of matched up to the historical time and then I've gone and purchased those models so now those models wouldn't happen to be 20% off on the warlord sale right now would they uh for president's day no comment comment. (laughs) it's a top secret joke sorry guys it's a uh one of those things that lee won't even tell me what he's bought so i'm 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 prying uh okay well let's talk so we did talk earlier that there were 26 missions in this book um and they really do go from the very beginning to the dying minutes of this operation um it, I was really blown away at the quality of the maps and just all of the uh, descriptions that really help set the scene for each mission. Um, I find that um, 
I haven't been playing in a ton of competitive events of late, um, and I've been playing a lot of friendly games. And the more I flipped through this book, the more I was inspired to play an actual campaign. Now, I don't think I've actually done that in bolt action ever. Um, I just, I like to play one-off games, and usually they're historically balanced or matched. Um, Sometimes they are just... You know, with a historical army, like I'll take my circa 1937 Chinese um, in German uniforms versus uh, Lee's uh, paratroopers in a very historical match in the snow. Um, Now, you might say those aren't historical at all. What are you talking about? Well, the armies are historical within themselves and in the research. And, you know, that that is what gets us, I think, Lee. Um, But actually playing an actual campaign with the actual models um, is, is just a really interesting experience. And I'm, I, I think this is the first book that's actually inspired me to do that. Um, Lee, what do you think? With, I mean, clearly, I know you've spent a lot of time looking at these missions. Yeah, uh, I think one of the things I like about the missions within the campaign book are they've got very set maps and mm-hmm. a lot of the terrain, you know, it's trees, it's some houses, it's some roads. You can do a lot of it with what most people would generally have available in their own collection or, or amongst point. their group. Mm. Um, so you could easily play through the campaign without having to build anything specialist. Um, bridges aside, um, there's a few of them that pop up here and there, but a lot of it really is around building some trees and some some uh, houses. And it's really setting that historical point and it gives you a bit of a description around what uh, sort of forces would be in the area. That's right. And and for a lot of the missions, they give you um, some, for even some of the missions that are really small, they tell you exactly what you get. So the German player uh, for Scenario 5, um, for example, crossing the wall, um, the German player has a force of six squads, each of five rif- riflemen with an NCO with an SMG, as well as, and it goes into very specifically what they have. And the paratrooper force, again, ha- is told what they can have. Um, and so if you want to play the the very historical games, you can for some of these missions. Other times, it's just a set point limit. Other times, it's just they give you a ballpark figure. So I, I really like how they've sort of teased it out. It It feels less restrictive than a lot of the missions in some of the other books. And that's not saying that's not a bad thing. I quite like strict missions that are fair for both players and tell me what's going on um that i like playing those but looking at these missions there is just a lot of freedom to to get do some really interesting things um including some very small games um which we really haven't seen outside of the operation sea lion mission some of those were very small as well um anything else you wanted to add there lee no, I'm just looking forward to giving a few of them a go. Definitely. Now, one thing that uh, is definitely appeals to me is sometimes I teach primary school and sometimes I'm on school holidays. And often when I'm on school holidays, the guys who I usually play with have a job. And so they work during the day, um, you know, being, you know, we're all middle-aged. Uh, and so what I really like is in this book, there's a nice section in the back that explains how to play bolt action solo. Um, I say this because I've played a number of solo games in the past uh, where I've just, you know, 
held myself to account and, you know, had the dice in the bag and just played one side of the table, pulled the dice out, go to the other side, um, depending on which dice comes out. And yes, there, there isn't a whole lot of surprise going there. But, you know, if you're trying out new armies or you're trying out new terrain ideas, um, it can sometimes be nice just to mess around, just to make sure that, you know, things work before you actually put them on a table with an opponent. Um, but I really like that there are nice, clean sets of rules using a deck of cards um, that you can mess around with um, that you know are, are formally written out in a book. So I like that a lot as well. Um, but I think, as you say, Lee, I think we just need to sit down and actually get some of these games in, um, especially now that we have the armies to play them, because my German army's massive, and your British paratrooper army is massive, and I think it's about time... Uh, the the bridges of uh, Arnhem are fought over. Yeah, I think a, a big battle is definitely in order. Look for those pictures on social media, guys. They're coming. Uh, th- again, thank you so much for listening. This has been the very first episode of the official Warlord Games podcast. Uh, my name is Brad, and I've been joined this evening by Paul Sawyer and, of course, Lee. Uh, say goodnight, Lee. Good night, Brad. Oh, I was going to say you say goodnightly. Uh, but thank you very much, everyone. And uh, again, please give us any feedback if you've enjoyed this episode or you haven't or you'd like us to talk about something else. Um, we have quite a few ideas for the next couple of episodes, uh, but those are easily moved around if one of you gives us something really special that we can pull out. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I hope you enjoy playing Warlord Games' games. Uh, my name is Brad, and I am saying... Good night. Glory, glory, what a hell of a way to die. Glory, glory, what a hell of a way to die. Glory, glory, what a hell of a way to die. And he ain't gonna jump no Everybody happy cried the sergeant looking up Our hero meekly answered yes and then they stood him up He leaped right out into the blast, his static line unhooked And he ain't gonna jump no more Glory, glory, why?